All right. Good morning again. Welcome. Uh, so this is fun. This is week nine, uh, last week of Hosea. So if you've been with us every week, you should be an expert in this minor prophet of Hosea. Uh, it's not true. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but we, it's, this is a while, right? This has been a, we've been in Hosea for a while, longer than the average church might go through a minor prophet. Uh, it would be really easy to spend four weeks in Hosea, and it would be easy to spend 20 weeks in Hosea. We chose nine because we're, we're like that. Uh, we got to be different, I guess. But I am glad that I had the opportunity to, to preach through this book. I've enjoyed it. Um, and so this is going to be, this is it. This is, we're going we're to put a, a bookend on this one. And uh, so, but what's going to be happening over the next four weeks is we're studying a new series called Entrusted. And uh, what that means is we're going to be looking at stewardship when it comes to our time, our treasure, our talent, and our ticker. Those are kind of four, four words that we've, we've talked about, um, uh, you know, stewardship over uh, at Hope Community Church for years uh, before my time at Hope, that these are kind of the four words that we've used. Um, and so we'll, we'll just spend one week looking at, at each of these. Uh, different aspects of stewardship. And so it's not just about money. Uh, that's just one week uh, as far as treasure. Sorry, I have a hair in my mouth. It's really hard to, it's really hard to talk with a hair in your mouth. All right, so that is that. Hosea, chapter nine. Let me do a quick recap. We've done this every single week. And so maybe some of this will stick as far as this is what the book is all about. Um, and we've read this verse every single week. So if you're just like, man, what's Hosea about? This is what it's about. Hosea chapter one, verse two, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. And so this is Israel being unfaithful to God. God has brought them out of slavery in Egypt, led them to the promised land, set up this awesome kingdom, which we'll talk about later on. And they, they just spit in God's face and they start committing idolatry, saying, no, God, I know like you did all this for us, but we want to do this. We want to go our own way. We want to worship our own gods like the other people around us and other nations around us. So uh, that's what's happening. And so we see Hosea doing this thing physically that he actually is going to marry a woman, a promiscuous woman. He's going to uh, have children with her to represent how God feels about Israel. And so it has these child, these, these three children, child one, uh, Jezreel, just this uh, valley of blood and death, not a good place. Child two, the name Lo-Ruhumah, like not love. Child number three, Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. That's what God is saying. It's, these are real children that Hosea named his kids. And God is saying, this is what I feel like towards you. So, uh, and then two weeks ago, I uh, looked at uh, this idea of chores, right? Like, why do we have 11 more chapters, right? It, it seems like there's a good, okay, we get this, we get the picture. And yet, I kind of shared the story of my mom, like having to explain, here's how you do your chores. It's like, mom, I know how to vacuum. No, 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 no. I need you to make lines like this. I need you to do it exactly like this. I got right? Because I don't get it. Because I always prove her wrong. I never do it the right way the first time. So she has to go into detail. And that's kind of what Hosea is doing. And then last week, uh, Paul, one of our elders, went through that, uh, the verse uh, focused mainly on that idea of I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. It's not about just following the rules. It's about our hearts. And this has been true of all time with God. It's, not, it's always been about our hearts, uh, not just about being a good person. It doesn't do anything for anybody. Um, and so I read this a couple weeks ago and I uh, want to read it one, one more time because it's, it's very fitting uh, for today and where we're going to be going. But the prophet's ministry, this is any prophet, but as in our context, Hosea, the prophet's ministry serves as a way to show Israel and the reader 
that the types and the shadows of the Old Testament are not the realities. These things are true, they happen, and yet it means more. Hosea lived this life, and yet it's pointing to something bigger. The realities have much more to do with the spiritual renewal on a more cosmic level, and yet are, yet, are not yet to come through the work of a suffering servant. So while Hosea was a type or it was a suffering servant, there's going to be a greater suffering servant who's going to come. And so um, that's going to be on full display today as we look at uh, the text this morning. And we're just going to bookend it. We're just going to look at chapter 14. There's a couple chapters in between. I think Paul went through chapter 8 last week. So we've got 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 that we're, we're just, we're not going to read this morning. It's a lot of text and a lot of it is on repeat. Like I said, of like, I want you to do it this way. Don't commit adultery anymore. Don't commit adultery anymore. Don't commit idolatry anymore. Stop it, right? It just kind of goes on and on and on. It's, but, but chapter 14, there's a, there's a change in the language and a shift. So I want to ask you a question and maybe conjure something up in your mind that do you have a favorite memory of a tree? All right, I know that's like a weird question, but as I was thinking about it, I was like, yeah, actually I do. <laughs> there are a couple memories that I have of trees that are, that were just, that are just fun. I don't know. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember I really wanted to build a, uh, a uh, tree house. I was little. I was really little. And, uh, and we had this beautiful cherry tree in our backyard. And I didn't ask for, for permission. I just went out there with a saw and started <laughs> hacking down limbs. Uh, and my parents weren't too happy about it. Uh, but it, this is, I just Googled like a picture of a dilapidated you know, tree house. And that's about what it ended up looking like as my finished product. Um, and, uh, and I totally ruined the tree. You know, it was just this beautiful pink flowers that would, bl- no, done. Uh, and, <laughs> but I, I did that and my dad was like, no, you ruined the tree. You can build it on your own. I'm not helping you with that. He helped a little bit, but not much. But I remember that I, and I enjoyed that. I kind of took ownership of this, of this tree. You know, my sister wasn't allowed up in my, my, my two by four that I had up in a branch, you know? Um, I remember we had a really big tree in our backyard and I had this distinct memory of my, my brother and my, our cousin, David, and they had to have been, in my mind, they were probably 10 feet, you know, or they were probably in reality 10 feet off the ground, but I thought they were 40 or 50 feet up, you know, as when you're a kid, everything's way bigger. And uh, he fell, my cousin David fell out of that and landed face first right in our sandbox, you know, a uh, little turtle, you know, one of those, one of those turtle sandboxes, um, and landed in that, saved his life probably, in my mind, because it was 40 feet, you know, that he fell, but I know that probably wasn't true. I remember cutting down, my, my grandpa had an old birch tree, and we, uh, the whole family, there was like 20 of us out there with an ax and we got it really close to falling and everyone would take one hit, one chop to see who was going to get the last chop to fell the tree. I don't remember who ended up doing that, but I, but I just, I remember that, right? We have these memories around, around these trees. And so I asked that, and I want you to think about this because this isn't just unique to me and maybe some of you with memories of trees, of climbing trees, of falling out of trees, whatever it may be. Uh, but we have these memories around trees. And so I want to look at, and this may seem odd, a theology of trees in the Bible. All right. So if you're new to the Bible, you're here to check out Christianity, see if we're weird. Yeah, we kind of are because we have a theology of trees. Okay. That's uh, not true. I mean, we, but well, so all I want to do is take, just kind of go through the Bible uh, from, from start to finish, right? Bookends and look at what are some significant trees that we see in Scripture? And we're going to see significant trees in Hosea in chapter 14. And so um, let's, let's jump into this. So let's look at the first tree of significance. Now, 
if you're new to the Bible, if you're not, you may have heard of this tree. Um, and so uh, shout out, what is the first tree of significance that we see in the Bible? Go ahead, shout it out. Yeah, I knew you were all going to say that. It's wrong. It's not right. The first tree that we get is not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first tree of significance that we get is the tree of life. All right, so it's right before the tree. We all remember the tree of knowledge of good and evil because we just kind of pan over this, right? Um, this was kind of interesting. I learned this when I was uh, this week when I was studying. Uh, this is a painting by Zach Kincaid. His dad is Thomas Kincaid. Remember the Thomas Kincaid paintings? Anyone? This is his son. It's $900 if you want a copy of it. Uh, or maybe the original, I don't know. Anyways, tree of life, right? What, who knows what it looks like? Uh, but this is, this is the, the text that I have in Genesis chapter two. And we're gonna be all over the place. We're gonna go, we're gonna, a, lot of, a lot of passage, a lot of text today. So it'll all be up on the board. If you wanna follow along, you can. I'm reading through the uh, NIV. Uh, there's one passage that'll be NASB, but I'll, I'll tell you about that and why. All right, so Genesis chapter two, starting in verse seven, the Lord God formed a man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. That's where we have the garden of Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Uh, when I read that, I just picture like God just like grabbing him by the neck, like the scruff and just like, there you go, uh, in the garden. Uh, that's where you belong. Uh, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, the trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, here we go, were, but it was, is the tree of life. All right, and that's where we are introduced to this tree of life. Now, there's not a lot more that is said about the tree of life right here. We're going to come back to the tree of life. So this then gets us to the second tree of significance, and that is now the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the rest of that verse in, verse, in chapter two, verse nine, we have in the garden, there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What I'm not gonna do this morning is talk about why would God even make that tree? Why would he even give them the option to sin? We're not even gonna get into that. That's a whole nother lecture. That's a whole nother topic uh, that we, someday, yes, we'll talk about it. But right now, uh, for time, we're not gonna be diving into that. Uh, but here we have God uh, putting both of these trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. Uh, chapter three, verse one. So skipping ahead to the next chapter, chapter three, starting verse one, it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? We're not gonna talk about talking animals right now. That's a whole nother topic, whole nother conversation. That someday if we, go, if we actually preach the book of Revelation, I would love to talk about it because there's actually a theology of talking animals in the Bible, believe it or not. Uh, but we'll, we won't get into that right now. But what happens here? What does the serpent say? Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And what's amazing right here is that Eve is going to be tempted by this. Did God really say, and this is exactly the same kind of temptation that each and every one of us feel and hear all the time. Did God actually say, don't steal? He said, don't steal, but the way you're stealing isn't really stealing. He said, don't lie, but the way that you're lying, is that really a lie? He didn't really say that. That's exactly what happens. Exactly what Satan says to Jesus when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. What does he say? He says, if you are the son of God, if I'm the son of God, 
Rewind the clock two verses, and Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist, comes up out of the water, and John the Baptist, sorry, John the Baptist, God, a voice from the, from the heavens opens up and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son. Next verse, if you are the son of God, do this. Right? Did God really say? Now, temptation's not a sin, but man, we learned a couple weeks ago, right, that root fruit, if you were here for that. Don't flirt with it, all right? But it's not a sin. So now let's keep going with this text. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat uh, fruit from the trees, the garden, but God did say you must not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. We don't know where the and do not touch it came from. Maybe, you know, the account in chapter two wasn't full or maybe, maybe Adam added uh, some things to his wife and said, let's not even touch it. Let's just maybe make some precautions around us. Like let's not even touch it. Right? Don't, don't be tempted by this. Let's, let's stay away from it or you will die. And then here we have the serpent saying, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Right? So what's, what's, what's going on here? What's all this talk about of knowing good and evil? The heart of it here, really, the heart of what's happening here is saying, you will be able to choose for yourself what is good. You will be able to choose for yourself what is evil. You can have, Eve, autonomy. You can have self-rule, which is what, again, all humanity has always wanted. I want to do what I want to do. That's what my, I got a four and a half year old. I don't know how many times I've heard him say that phrase. I just want to do what I want to do, right? We're playing a game. Here's what, well, this is what skip, you know, and uno means this. I just want to do what I want to do, right? It's just, and it starts just in our nature. We don't want to have a boss. I want to do what I want to do, right? We don't want to have someone looking over my shoulder and micromanaging me. And that's exactly what's going on here. That's the serpent is saying, no, 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 no. You can self-rule. You can have full autonomy. When God says, don't touch, don't eat, you can go, how about I decide what I can touch and what I can eat? It's always been this way from the beginning. In verse six, then continuing the story, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. You want autonomy? You want self-rule? Well, this is what it looks like and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They gave up walking with God, their creator, in the cool of the day for autonomy. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? I think it's fitting on today. Uh, I know we call it Halloween, Hallowed Eve. November is Holy Month. That's why it's called that. When we look at Halloween, it's also that I've mentioned this Reformation Day, right? That 500 and, what would that be? Uh, 504 years ago, Martin Luther nails his 95 theses on the door in Wittenberg, on the, on the chapel there. I'm not going to get into all that, but what I do want to talk about is this idea of providence. We as Americans, maybe Western culture in general, we, we, 
we buck at this idea because again, we want to be uh, autonomous. We want to self-rule. I don't want this idea that there's somebody always watching me. You know, he's providential, that his hand's in everything. Get your hand out and off. Let me do it my way. And if you remember when we did, if, and if you weren't here, that's okay, but we had the stained glass stories and there's that eye of Sauron. Remember, right? This, this all-seen eye of God. And we talked about providence a little bit of saying that's, that should be comforting to those of us who are in Christ, who want the presence of God in our life. But when, when we're naked and ashamed, just like Eve and just like Adam, what do we do? We hide. And just that word providence, what does it mean for providence? There's this, been this, um, over the last couple hundred years, this joining of providence and sovereignty, but it was never taught that way historically, that there was providence of God, that he's in control, and then sovereignty dealt, dealt more with uh, salvation. So, but providence, pro in Latin, just meaning before, and then Video, vidia, right? Meaning uh, saw. Uh, Veri, vidi, vici, right? Is that how you say that? Uh, I came, I saw, I conquered. I saw a video, right? So he can see before. It's his providence. He knows what's going on. He sees what's happening in our lives. And we all want privacy. We all want, um, and we all have secrets. But God knows them. And he wants them to be exposed. Adam hides. That's our first instinct always is to hide. And yet, what happens? God comes looking for us, and it's always been true. Now, when we read the Bible, we don't read the Bible of how do I find God? It's always, this is how God pursues you. And that's true of the very first moment that God speaks to Adam after he sins. Skipping forward then to Genesis 321, it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now, when we see sin, this is the first time we see sin, and then we see a sacrifice that happens, that there's innocent blood that is shed for the guilty. Again, that's a theme that we're going to see, this, this undertone that happens here that's going to be carried out exponentially more in the New Testament in Christ. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And here's what happens. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and also take from, here it is again, the tree of life and eat and live forever. I don't know what this tree looked like, but it obviously had some kind of fruit on it that he was originally allowed to eat, but now because of sin and suffering, God says, you cannot live forever in a broken world. And what's interesting, you've probably read books, you've probably watched movies where this happens, that somebody's granted eternal life or, or something like that, and they, and they get to a point where they're like, I can't handle anymore. I can't handle seeing other people suffer. I can't handle what's going on in the world. I got to end my life, right? Think Wolverine, right? Doesn't he do that, right? He gets to the end of it, and he's like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Right, that's a great book. You got to read sometimes, right? There's, a, there's so many characters that we could, we could attribute that same thing to. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed in the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. No one's allowed to go near the tree of life anymore. We're done. Sin has happened. We're not doing this anymore. So now let's look at number three, the third trees, plural, of significance. You can catch a theme here, catch my outline again. 
I was, I was working. I just had this epiphany. I was like, man, I got a really good outline for this week. Memorable. Uh, it will stick. And, and here, here it is. First tree, second tree, third, third trees. Here it is. Anyone know what this tree is? This picture of a tree? Cedar of Lebanon. Okay, it's a cedar of Lebanon. Cedars of Lebanon are all over the place, not only in scriptures, but even within our culture. Uh, they actually have, uh, I, I go to a camp every year, a couple times a year, I teach up at a camp called Camp Lebanon. Um, and, there, and all throughout scripture, this, this area of Lebanon is just beautiful. Uh, and it's portrayed that way in these majestic trees uh, and these cedars. And you uh, too. Uh, the band actually has a song called Cedars of Lebanon, okay? That's where this, the, I don't know why, because the song doesn't make any sense to me when I read the lyrics. I was going to quote some of it, and I was like, I don't even know. I have no idea what's happening. Um, so uh, anyways, let's, let's get into this. Where do we see this? So we go to, we're going to go to 1 Kings. So 1 Kings chapter 5. Uh, and, and again, I'm, I know we're kind of all over the place this morning, but just, just follow with me. So in 1 Kings uh, we're going to have King Solomon. And so if you remember, um, uh, if you don't remember, that's okay. That's why I'm going to explain it. That you have this united kingdom of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, but they were united, but there wasn't a king. And so they said, we want a king like the other nations. And God warns them and says, this is not going to go well for you. Uh, he's going to enslave your children to work for him. He's going he's to take your daughters as wives. He's going to take all your money and tax you. Are you sure you want to do this? Like, yeah, we want a king. And so they anoint King Saul, not because he was a good king, but just because he was bigger than everybody else. And so Saul is the first king. He loses that job. He does some things that he should not have done as a king. And God says, I'm taking my spirit from you. And so Saul loses the kingship, and then you get King David. King David is anointed, and King David um, uh, unites Israel, uh, protects them. He's kind of a warrior king. And then he has a son, Solomon. And so that's where this is picking off and picking up in first Kings. Cause if, when, if you remember when Hosea, the next Kings, the whole kingdom falls apart, just splits. It's, it's a mess, right? So within four generations, uh, the kingdom's a mess. When Hiram king of Tyre heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father, David, he sent his envoys to Solomon because he had always been on friendly terms with David. Solomon sent back his message to Haram. You know that because of the wars waged against my father David from all sides, he could not build a temple for the name of the Lord his God until the Lord put his enemies under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side and there is no adversary or disaster, which is, this is historically exactly what happened. David is fighting, there's wars and wars and wars, but then he finally gains peace. Solomon inherits that kingdom and he's just living it up, uh, full peace. And so he's the new king, and so that's why this letter is being written. He says, I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord told my father David when he said, your son, whom I will put on the throne in your place, will build the temple for my name. Because God tells King David, no, you're not allowed to build me a temple. Too much blood has been shed by your hands. It will be your son. So give orders, this is again Solomon talking to the king, so give orders that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me and my men will work with yours and I will pay uh, for your men whatever wages you set. You know that we have no one so skilled in felling timber as the Sidoans. So that's what happens. And these cedars of Lebanon are used, they're cut down and, and hundreds and thousands of these trees are cut down to build this, this temple uh, in Jerusalem 
that Solomon is going to build. So that's kind of the first reference that we have of significance of the cedars of Lebanon. But if we skip now then to our book of Hosea, we get a little bit more of what's going on. So again, God has kind of renewed his, his, his covenant vows with Israel saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm threatening to divorce you, but I'm going to renew. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And so here we go. This is what our new relationship is going to be like. And so Hosea then kind of bookends it with these verses. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like the, like the cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade and they will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, just another name for Israel. What more have I to do with idols, right? We're done with idolatry. We're done with this apostasy. Follow me, I'm gonna bless you. And I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. And one quote, this has been a very uh, interesting read for me. It's a woman's Bible commentary. Um, and the whole idea is just to read the book from a different perspective. Uh, and I grew up, again, very conservative. I never had a female teacher, professor, until I came to Hope. Uh, and I remember being taught by Natty Severson, my mind just being blown. You know what I mean? Like, I never thought about it like that before. Uh, and this, what this commentary kind of does. Let me just read this. Where, they had been, where there had been death, desolation, dryness, all manner of beauty would spring forth. All the most beautiful plants would grow and develop. The land and people would be blessed. The fragrance of the flowers, here we go, the fragrance of the flowers would overpower the stench of death and destruction. All would be fertile and filled with beauty. I just love that idea of the fragrance of the flowers and specifically in Hosea, it says the, the fragrance of the cedars of Lebanon. It's gonna overpower the stench of death and destruction that, that has been done to Israel, but now is going to be changed. It's gonna be uh, re, uh, responded to. So keep that on pause. Let's look now at the fourth tree of significance. And this tree, and though it's been called the tree, obviously most commonly is called the cross. Uh, the Romans had different ways of execution with a cross. Uh, one was just a pole. Uh, or a staff, and they would nail or tie people to that. And there was that the, the T shape there. Uh, the third one there is most common that we would think of when it comes to Jesus and his crucifixion. And the fourth one there is just a tree. Uh, they, they would just use what they had. Uh, and so normally there was a pole in the ground, and the, the person the person being executed would carry that, that cross beam, that top part of the beam. And that's most likely what Christ carried on the way to his death. But I want to go back. So I'm kind of getting out of the, the order, the line here the, of, of biblical storyline that we've been going through. But I want to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, all the way back, one of the first five books of the Bible. This is law. It says, if, man, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he is to be put to death and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged on a tree or he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So looking now at Galatians chapter three, the apostle Paul, 
a man who's Jewish, who knows these laws, he's, he's got to memorize. He probably has the book of Deuteronomy memorized. This is his new revelation. Now this side of the cross, this side of the, the death of Jesus, he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. Right now, currently, there are some different views on covenants with God. So I'll just give a brief word. But there's different viewpoints that say, by grace, we are brought into this covenant family with God, but I need to do something. I have to obey the commands of God to remain in the covenant. And I'm not the greatest theologian. I'm probably not the greatest theologian in this room. But what I know is that when I read verse 11, clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. I live by faith, not by doing something. So the way I read verse 11 is this way. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. That's how I read it. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. If you want to live by the law, you want to try to be a really good person, you always perfectly have to be a good person. Always. And Paul is saying, you can't do it. It's impossible. It's by faith. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or hung on a tree. He, Jesus, redeemed all of us in order that the blessing given to Abraham or the Israelites might come to the Gentiles, Gentiles, all nations, all ethnic, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. If I did nothing to earn my salvation to get into the covenant of Christ because he paid for it, then I can do nothing to unearn that. Moving on, the last point here, I'm, I'm tricking you. We're going to go back to that first tree of significance. We're going to go back, right? So mix it up. See, I'm not, I'm not a one-trick pony. You know, I, I can go back. I can do things. First tree of significance again. And so we're going to look at this tree of life. And I looked at some, again, some artist renditions. And, and so when we get to the book of Revelation, it's kind of depicting the new heaven and new earth. And it's it's kind of confusing someday, man, I'd really love to, to preach the book of Revelation. We'll get there at some point. But this, this, there's this idea, and I'll read the passage where the artist has this, but um, these trees of life need like they need a little bit more life. Uh, you know what I'm saying? They just seem really puny. Uh, it's like, I don't, know, I don't know what's going on. They pruned way too much that day or something. Uh, so uh, artists, I appreciate you. This is wrong. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, it could be, it could be, I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Uh, this seems a little bit more accurate. Uh, I don't know, a little, little fairy tale land there. Let me read the passage and, and maybe you can get why the artist would draw it that way. Revelation is a really hard book to sketch. So just stop. Let's just not try to do it, okay? Revelation 22. This is the last chapter of the Bible. This is how the Bible ends. Revelation chapter 2. The Apostle John tells us, The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, that's Christ. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river 
stood the tree of life. So how does that work? It's one tree, but it's on, on both sides of the river. So the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Man, we could use some of those leaves right now, right? <laughs> I don't know what it means. I don't know what, I don't know what leaves are going to do for the healings of nations, but I want some of those leaves. <laughs> and I'm sure that when John penned these words from the, getting the revelation from Jesus himself, he was like, well, can we get some of those leaves? Because we could use that right now in our time. And for thousands of years, Christians have been begging for these leaves, for the healing of the nations. In verse three, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. There will be no longer any curse, no longer uh, disjointed untrust between people and spouses, no more curse. There'll be no more death. There'll be suffering, no more turmoil, no more natural disasters, no more any of that stuff. It's done, it's gone. It says that God throws all that into the sea. It's just gone. And they will see his face. We read over and over again in the scriptures that you, no one can see the face of God and live. And now here we are gonna see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. What's that mean? No clue. Verse five, there will be no more night and they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Let me close with just this passage, the end, the very last verse now of Hosea. Hosea says this, who is wise? Let them realize these things. Again, the whole context of Hosea of rejecting idolatry, rejecting things that we would even view as good, our jobs, our family, our friends that we idolize, achievement, recognition. Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand the ways of the Lord are right and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. We're taught over and over in scripture that today is the day of salvation. And there are a lot of us going back to Adam that God says, where are you? Where are you? And that's true of every single one of us. You might not be a follower of Jesus, but I'm telling you, he's saying, where are you? And you might be a lifetime follower of Jesus. Maybe we talk about being a professional Christian for 30 some years. Jesus is still saying, where are you? I want you to be with me. I want you to talk with me. I want you to be my friend, my brother, my sister. He pursues us that we don't need to feel naked and ashamed when I'm in Christ because he has covered me with his righteousness. What Luther calls the great exchange that I take my sin and my wickedness and God just doesn't remove my sin and wickedness and say, okay, all right, that's gone, so you're good enough. No, 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 now he's gonna give me the righteousness of Christ and he's gonna call me his son. So in gospel application, Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus died on a tree. Maybe we didn't deserve in our minds maybe to die physically or anything like that. You might think, no, I think I'm okay. But spiritually rotten and dead, and Jesus says, I'm gonna become that curse for them so that they might have eternal life. Jesus dies to cover our death, the stench of our death and decay. Jesus dies and he becomes this fragrance that overpowers our sin and our death. And finally, 
Someday we will eat of the fruit of the tree of life together. What's that look like? Not a clue. But it's going to be fun. It's going to be a party. And I'm looking forward to that day. As always, we have communion here at Hope Lower Town. And if you didn't grab the elements, they're in the, in the hallway out in the back there. And uh, just little prepackaged things. And the wafer that represents the body of Christ that's broken for us. And the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. And so today, looking at this theology of trees, looking at the, the tree that Christ has hung on to die to pay for our sins and ultimately celebrate and, and enjoy that tree of life together, we get to remember what it is that Christ did. So you don't have to be a member of this church or a member of any church. All it asks is that you're a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, and maybe today is your first day to say, man, I, I wanna be a follower of Jesus. I would strongly encourage you to take place uh, in that meal with us as we partake of those elements. Let me pray, and then we will worship through song, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for something as simple as a, as a tree in Scripture. Uh, that we can look at this tree of life in Genesis. And oh, how I wish that our uh, original parents, Adam and Eve, would not have eaten of that tree of knowledge of good and evil if they just would have not and continued to eat of that tree of life that they could have lived forever physically and yet they didn't. And so it brings upon death, not just physical death, but then spiritual death. And we're born spiritually dead. And it's only because of you and your spirit that breathes life into us. And someday we're gonna partake of that, that tree of life together. So God, I pray now that as we sing these songs, as we partake of these elements, that we would remember what it is that your son did for us on that day thousands of years ago. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.